From the heart of The Ohio State University on the Oval, this is Voices of Excellence from the College of Arts and Sciences with your host, David Staley. Voices focuses on the innovative work being done by faculty and staff in the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University. From departments as wide-ranging as art, astronomy, chemistry and biochemistry, physics, emergent materials, mathematics and languages, among many others, the college always has something great happening. Join us to find out what's new now. Chris Orban is an assistant professor in the Department of Physics at the Marion campus of The Ohio State University. He specializes in computational physics, having received his Ph.D. from Ohio State in 2011 with a thesis studying cosmological n-body simulations. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. Since then, Chris has branched out into laboratory astrophysics and ultra-intense laser science as a member of the High Energy Density Physics Group here at Ohio State. Welcome to Voices, Dr. Orban. Yeah, thanks for having me here. This is a fun studio to be in. I quite agree. I know that you've developed some pretty innovative approaches in your freshman physics class, and I'd like you to discuss some of these. What sorts of things are you doing in your physics classroom? Yeah, so, you know, as a postdoc and as a professor, I would have these undergrads that would come up to me and they say, hey, I want to do a research project with you. And of course, I want to help them and I'm a new faculty member. And, you know, everybody here wants students to succeed. But the problem is that there's a lot of students that Maybe they got straight A's in high school, but no one showed them how to code, no one showed them how to use a computer to solve a science or a math problem, things like that, until the moment where they come into my office and they say, hey, I want to do a research project. And I don't want to say I got so fed up with it, but maybe that is the best <laughs> word. But I just felt like something had to be done to sort of give students a gentle introduction to how you would use a computer to solve problems like that. And to try to see how early we can start. I mean, can we start this in high school? Can we start this in middle school? And what kind of activities would really be sort of the baby steps to eventually getting to those skills where you can sort of understand more of the nuances of computational physics? But, you know, to do a research project with me, the computer skills is kind of the biggest barrier. And so I really wanted to address that head on and in a national way. National in what way? How have you, how have you done that? In 2014, right as soon as I started teaching at the Marion campus, that first semester I had the Asteroids game. And Asteroids? The, yes, that's the one. The, that you're the game from of. the arcade. That's right. So <laughs> it's a video game, but it has really good physics in it. And if you think about what your goals are in the first semester of physics, the laws of physics are most easily understood for a rocket drifting in free space, Right. There's no gravity. It's just a rocket, you know, thrusting and accelerating and all that stuff. And so I said, well, what a perfect canvas for illustrating these physics ideas, but in a fun way that students can kind of appreciate. So that first semester, like that first summer as I was preparing to be a professor, I was building that activity. And my students really liked it. And eventually I started sharing it with some of the high school physics teachers that I knew. And they really liked it. And they had suggestions and things. And then in 2017, I got a grant from Connect and Collaborate, which is an OSU grant program mm -hmm. here. And that helped us to launch a YouTube channel that, you know, obviously YouTube is national, international scope. And so I, I wanted to make sure that uh, people could get access to it that weren't just in my class, you know. What are some of those videos on your YouTube channel? You know, we started with the Asteroids game. We have Angry Birds. You, do you remember the Lunar Lander game? <laughs> I do indeed. So you're trying to land a little rocket on the moon and things like that. There's a lot of good physics in those games, you know. 
And you mentioned Angry Birds. If this is what I'm thinking of, my son used to do this. These were like physics-based games. You had to design the car, the vehicle, such to have a certain amount of weight for it to go up the hill and those sorts of things. Yeah, Angry Birds is a good example of projectile motion because you're kind of launching this bird across a screen, things like that. And projectile motion is, you know, one (laughs) of the obsessions of first-year physics classes. People tend to think that making a video game is this really difficult thing, but the code behind Angry Birds is not as complicated as you might imagine. Well, speaking of code, I know that one of your interests or one of the things you've developed is the STEM coding project. Tell us about STEM coding project. Yeah, so these videos were um, part of the STEM coding project and, you know, one of the big efforts of the STEM coding project. And so that grant that I won in 2017, I kind of cite that as sort of the launch point of the STEM coding project. I mean, I was working on it in 2014 and 2015, 2016, but that was really the first grant that we had won. You know, we made the YouTube channel. We started training high school physics teachers with online professional development. Um, and it's really expanded and we get more and more interest every day. I, you know, every couple of days I get an email from different parts of the nation or the globe of people finding our stuff on, uh, either YouTube or ourcode.com, things like that. You know, we like to read kids that, that one Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Mm-hmm. I think we need to revise that. It's like, Oh, the Places You'll Get an Email From, <laughs> you know, uh, get emails from Croatia, England, and India. What are they particularly interested in when they contact you? What is it that they're interested in? I mean, often it's they're interested in getting access to the teacher solutions. So you kind of have to ask, you know, you have to email me and ask for teacher solutions. I don't just give those away. And so that's kind of a fun way to see like who's interested to use our stuff and doing it in their classrooms. Yeah, and to be clear, when you say coding and computational physics and bringing coding into the classroom, this isn't just simply using technology. This is sort of what building tools in order to solve problems. Yeah, so you know, we want to do more stuff in the future in which you know, we take, say, videos of experiments, you know, launching a marble across the room or something. We want to sort of take those videos and simulate it and things like that so there's more of a one-to-one connection to the world. For now, it's just a lot of fun to show kids, here's a video game, here's a physics-enriched video game. Obviously, you know, Candy Crush is not a very physics-relevant <laughs> game, but there's a, a whole lot that are, and it's not that hard to come up with a good idea. Like Pong, for example. You wouldn't think Boy, that, that... that's going back. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's a little depressing how few people remember Pong. I was, I'm 36, so I do remember Pong in my early days. I'm not so young as to, to, <laughs> to not remember that. But uh, well, I won't mention my age, but I am someone who does remember Pong and sure. actually played it. <laughs> you know, the nice part about Pong is that it illustrates elastic collisions. You know, the, so we have a whole video series on how the kinetic energy before and after the collision with the walls, the kinetic energy is actually the same. Well, and let, you can use that to make a code and things like that. Well, let's take that example. Let's take Pong or let's take any sort of these games. How are you actually using them in the classroom? In other words, students aren't just simply playing games and saying, hey, this is a lot of fun. How do you build a lesson or how do you sort of teach physics with these? I would give a typical lecture on collisions, you know, and then sort of after that, the Pong activity would try to see if you can use the concepts that I talked about in the lecture and put that into a code. <laughs> And so the fact that it's a video game is just this kind of interesting byproduct that makes it more interesting. There's a fair number of other folks out there making coding activities for intro physics that are along the lines of like, well, press play and watch this thing do this thing that we've been talking about. And that's, you know, that's one way to do it. But it's, in my opinion, it's not quite as fun as 
showcased in the games where you actually get to use that physics. And if you think about how we teach in elementary school, kids play games to learn math and things like that, or to learn the letters or alphabet, things like that. And, you know, why do we have to stop using games once we get to college where everything's really serious, you know? You know, I just try to keep the fun coming. I was looking at your website for the STEM coding project, and I noticed you have faculty and postdocs and undergrads. It almost sounds like a lab. Is it fair to to call this a lab? Um, That's a good question. One of the nice parts about being at Ohio State is that there's so many students here and so many undergrads and grad students and postdocs and and programs and things. And so one of the things I like to do is that when – so let's say there's a physics student just got uh, her Ph.D., well – you know, maybe there's a month or two before they're leaving for another job or something like that. If I have some grant funds, I can hire them to make videos with me, things like that. And, you know, one of the big issues in STEM is the lack of diversity. Hmm. And if you look on YouTube and you look at the different YouTube channels for STEM that are out there, relatively few of them are female-led, for example, Hmm. or minority-led or whatever. And, you know, being at Ohio State, I can recruit from, you know, we've had people on the channel from Young Scholars Program, National Society of Black Engineers. Uh, We've had people on the channel from the Society of Women in Physics. And it's great to be able to recruit from all those different groups. And they're often very eager to help, and they really appreciate the mission that we're trying to do. So the kids ultimately in high schools can see people that look like them doing physics and coding and science and having fun. So I know that part of your practice includes uh, using visualizations and simulations. And I know you're part of a group, Buckeye VR group. Tell us about this group and just how you're using visualization and simulations. You know, virtual reality in education is something that's kind of been this perennial topic for a long time. It's, in the last couple of years, have had kind of increased interest as, you know, Facebook bought Oculus Rift and all that stuff. And so kind of how I got into it, the 2014-2015 academic year was sort of my first year teaching as a professor. And one of the courses I had to teach was electromagnetism. Okay, which is... So electromagnetism gets into not just the physics of, you know, balls shooting across the room. It starts to get into how do electric charges behave, how do currents behave, how do circuits behave, how does light behave, things like that. What's the physics and the math behind those things? So, I mean, mostly it's for engineers so that they have some familiarity with these things to do engineering jobs and things. The second semester of physics, which is the course I'm talking about, you take all that machinery from the first semester where you're doing asteroids and all these other things, and then all of a sudden you have electric fields and magnetic fields, and you have to visualize these things. The visualization challenge of that second semester of physics is considerable, and one of the barriers in that course. And in 2015, I believe it was summer 2015, Google has this big conference where they announce all the fun stuff that they're working on. And two Google employees had kind of banded together because apparently at Google, like 10% of your time is like up to you to do whatever you want with it, which is pretty nice. <laughs> to work on experiments or cool things. or Yeah, whatever they want. And so what they did is they said, hey, what if we use a smartphone as the display for a virtual reality experience and we just made a little piece of cardboard that would hold the smartphone in place? Like glasses or goggles or something like that. Yeah, it looks a lot like VR goggles, except for that it's like vastly cheaper. Yeah, (laughs) made of cardboard. (laughs) Exactly. You can literally drive over to Staples right now and get one for 10 or 20 bucks. Yeah. And so I saw this thing and I rushed and bought one, downloaded some of the apps, walked into Chris Porter, who is a physics education 
research postdoc here at Ohio State. I walked into Chris Porter's office and I showed him the thing and I said, like, we have to do something with this. And then lo and behold, in fall 2015, there was a computer science student in my class who was amazing at coding up these 3D virtual environments. And I was like, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) And within a couple of weeks, we had this demo out with electric fields. And so now if you go to the Android or the iOS store, you can download this electric field visualization app. You have to have the, you know, the $20 headset or whatever, but it will work on Android and iPhones and things like that. So what's that experience? If I were to pop that on, how would I experience or visualize electrical fields? Yeah. So some of the visualizations have a positive charge or a negative charge or both in there. And basically what you would be looking at is sort of these two spheres, one with a plus sign on it, the other one with a negative sign on it. And then there would be these arrows sort of in the air pointing in the direction of the electric fields. And often that electric field structure is hard to visualize just in general. Like if you imagine, I mean, if I could show it to you and you could look at it and I'd say, all right, well, that's cool. But can you imagine me even trying to draw this on a whiteboard? I'm not that much of an artist, David. <laughs> and so to compensate for my lack of artistry, I would, I'd rather make a smartphone app that shows you what it really looks like than sort of me bumbling around on a whiteboard trying to explain it. It's almost like you're climbing inside an electrical field. One way to explain it is that I'm trying to show the student what I think of when I visualize an electric field in my head. I'm, tr- <laughs> I'm trying to show them the thing that is in my mind for what it is rather than sort of like drawing a crude thing on a whiteboard and waving my hands and saying, well, and then that's actually it's in 3D. And, and I should say that we've done studies on using this in the classroom and trying to see how much it can benefit the instruction. So not only do we make these apps, and by the way, we got a big grant from the Steam Factory to, to help with all this, so I want to acknowledge them. So we're both Steam Factory cheerleaders, I think. That's right. <laughs> And so part of that grant we got from Steam Factory helped us to do the largest study of VR integration in STEM we think that's ever been done. So we had over 600 students in the study that was done on the main campus in 2017. There was actually 600 students in the first study, and then in the spring 2017, another 500 or so wow. students in the fall. And Chris Porter was kind of the driving force behind it. I mean, I helped with, you know, I helped win the grant in the first place, but... <laughs> You know, I was advising as as much as I could along the way. But yeah, we did sort of the largest study that's ever been done on seeing what can be gained from using this technology in the classroom. So who are the Buckeye VR group? Thank you for asking me that because I need to shout them out. So Chris Porter has been there from the beginning. He's a postdoc. There's also Bart Snap in the math department. He uses Buckeye VR in his Calculus 3 courses. Hmm. Jim Fowler is also hmm. kind of on board with that. And then John Brown, who is in the chemical and biochemical department. It's always a mouthful. But John Brown has been there from the beginning. And, you know, John's contributed some of the best ideas we've had for developing new stuff. You know, so we've got the physics side and the math side. John also likes to contribute chemistry visualizations to us. We're all working together to try to make free resources that people can use if they're interested in using VR. I'm Janet Box Steffensmeyer, Interim Executive Dean and Vice Provost for The Ohio State University, College of Arts and Sciences. Did you know that 23 of our programs are nationally ranked as top 25 programs, with more than 10 of them in the top 10? That's why we say the College of Arts and Sciences is the intellectual and academic core of The Ohio State University. Learn more about the college at artsandsciences.osu.edu. 
So I want to take you back to your dissertation work, cosmological n-body simulations. You have to tell us what this is, but maybe start by telling us or reminding us what cosmology is. Yeah, I would say that cosmology is the quest to understand the universe on the largest scales and on the largest time scales. You know, so how big can we understand and how long ago can we understand is how I would define it. Mm. I was a grad student here at Ohio State from 2006 to 2011, and I worked with David Weinberg, who's now the astronomy department chair. And he assigned me to a project basically doing computer simulations of how galaxies form in an expanding universe. And the things that you want to know when you do those kinds of simulations are how does the, you know, the details of the universe affect the way that galaxies form? or even more broadly, the way these like giant filaments form or the voids form, things like that. And those n-body computer simulations are the best way to kind of do that. So that's kind of what I focused on in my PhD work, and we tried to understand these things. It's a very pretty thing to look at, I'll say. You know, I feel bad for my colleagues in particle physics that the only thing they really have is like these pretty Feynman diagrams. But <laughs> besides that, there's not a whole lot of pretty-looking plots to look at. So cosmology is a good exception to that rule. These days, I don't do as much cosmology research because I am a finite individual with a finite amount of time on my hands. Um, I'm doing a lot of other fun stuff. But what I am doing is I am working on a planetarium show with uh, the planetarium staff. So Wayne Schlingman is helping me. Also, Mike Stamatikos at the Newark campus because Newark has a planetarium, actually. Their science museum there has one that Mike Stamatikos helps to run. And we're building a planetarium show on the history of the Big Bang. Mm. Not necessarily from a science point of view, but historically, how did the Big Bang model develop? Uh, what was sort of its origins? So like the idea, the history of the idea of the Big Bang. Absolutely. And so it goes back to kind of, you know, Einstein published his theory of gravity in 1915. And then in 1917, he started thinking about the cosmological consequences of that. But Einstein did not think that the universe was expanding, did not think that the universe could expand or that that would make any sense. And it's just from his own instinct, he sort of counted that out. But it was people like George Lemaitre and Edwin Hubble who convinced Einstein that indeed the universe is expanding. And so there's an interesting story behind all that, which will be a great planetarium show that I hope you'll watch. When will we get to see the planetarium show? Uh, we will probably unveil it in the fall when the students get back. I hope it'll be done over the summer. But I have a really nice visualization in that show that I made using the kind of simulations I did in my PhD thesis. So I shouldn't say that I don't do any cosmology anymore because I did have a lot of fun making what I think is a pretty interesting visualization of the Big Bang. You say you've, well, you still have a hand in cosmology, but that you've moved on to laboratory astrophysics and in particular plasma physics. Tell us about this research. Part of my research is with the extreme light research group at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which has either the most intense laser that the Air Force owns or one of the most. So they have a laser system out there that they're doing experiments on. Before you ask me if they're shooting down drones, no, they're not shooting down <laughs> drones with it. It turns out that once a laser is above a certain intensity, it just ionizes the air. Ionized air acts like a mirror, and so you can't, the laser doesn't go more than a few inches. So you got to pump all the air out of a chamber and things like that. But there's interesting research you can do to try to accelerate particles up to high energies and things like that, try to make compact sources of radiation. Another research group I collaborate with, which is more on the laboratory astrophysics side, 
Anil Pradhan in the astronomy department, he is trying to understand basically the way that X-rays sort of bounce and propagate through the sun. And that turns out to be a very important problem for understanding the sun. There's still a lot we don't understand about the sun. And in 2015, there was a laboratory astrophysics experiment that told us that the matter in the sun is probably more opaque to X-rays than we thought it was. Hmm. And so that mystery is still essentially unsolved. And so Anil is coming at it from a theoretical side of saying, well, how can can we look at these theoretical quantum mechanical models, try to figure out, are there reasons to think from a theory side that it should be more opaque? And then there's other people that are working on the experimental side of what kind of experiments can we do to try to to verify this conclusion. So we can try to figure this, what in the world is going on. You know, it's kind of embarrassing to have, you know, light shining on humanity for thousands of years, to have science be this advanced, and then we don't really quite understand what's going on in our own sun. What is or who are the high-energy density physics group? Yeah, the high-energy density physics group, it's me, it's people like Doug Schumacher and Lynn Van Workham. I don't know if you know Lynn, he was director of the Honors and Scholars Program for a Mm -hmm. while. Mm -hmm. And so at one point I was a postdoc in that group, And so the high-energy density physics group is kind of our labs, the scarlet laser in physics, and also those of us that collaborate with Wright-Pad as well. So there's sort of, there's a lot of expertise in intense laser physics. I should also give a shout out to Enam Chowdhury, who's also part of that group. And he's transitioning from physics to, I believe, material science as a tenure professor. Enam is also a big driving force and Scarlet in that group as well. And so we're all kind of working on similar things, although not exactly the same thing. And so a lot of the students come together for journal clubs and things like that. Uh, We use a lot of same codes. We have a reasonably sized group within the physics department. Turns out you and I share a commonality in that we uh, both host a podcast. Tell us about the podcast that you host for the Steam Factory, I believe. Sure. Um, You know, when I started at the Marion campus, you know, I'd already bought a house in Columbus because I bought a house as a postdoc. You're probably not supposed to do that, but I did. (laughs) And so I live very close to the Columbus campus here. I walked over this morning and suddenly I was in the car for, you know, four or six hours a week and I started just loving these podcasts. I mean, uh, the Serial podcast came Mm -hmm. out and, you know, This American Life and Radiolab and all these things. And I just fell in love with it. And there's so many interesting stories that I heard that I wanted to get on tape. You know, it was that impulse that drove me to sort of ask the Steam Factory and said, well, can I have some help from interns to do something like this? And they, you know, when you ask people, sometimes they say yes, and they said yes. And so the Steam Factory has been very helpful in sort of letting me borrow interns for periods of time to work on these things and edit these things. And for a while, they were able to hire specifically journalism students. And I did not realize how amazing the journalism Mm. program is at this university. And every one of those students that we worked with was just sharp as a tack and very helpful for getting the thing off the ground. So that's kind of my guilty pleasure of building that. And we've actually recorded in the same studio that we're in today. What's your podcast called? Life, the Universe, and Everything. So if you go to the Steam Factory website, you can sort of click around and find our podcast. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Music, uh, Stitcher, Podbean. I think that covers it. Yeah. So if you search for Life, the Universe, and Everything, also if you search for Steam Factory, it might be a little bit easier to find that. So tell us how you ended up as a physicist. What was your journey to becoming a PhD physicist? 
It's funny because, you know, when I was in college, all of my friends were changing majors. And I feel like most undergrads probably change majors about once or maybe even twice. Twice for you, David? Twice for me. Okay. You're signaling over there. So I was one of those unusual kids. I never actually changed my major. You hmm. know, I was I started as physics. I finished in physics. And uh, it was it goes back to basically when I was about 12 years old. And I was interested in science. I was reasonably good at math. I wasn't like this math prodigy or anything, but you know, everybody said, "Oh, you should do engineering. You should do engineering." Well, I thought about it, and I went to one or two engineering camps, which I was fortunate to do so because uh, my family could send me to those. And I tried the engineering camps, and I just didn't like it. I didn't like the making of stuff for the sake of making stuff. And I realized that the thing I was really interested in was, you know, the ideas behind it and the science behind it. So. It goes back a long way. I mean, my mom has pictures of me making space shuttles when I was a kid. I grew up in Florida near Tampa, and the space shuttles would sort of like, when they're landing, they'll fly over Tampa on their way there. It's funny because, you know, occasionally, just out of the blue, there'll be a gigantic boom, (laughs) and you won't know what's going on until you think about it like, oh, there must have been a space shuttle flying over. So I got to see two space shuttle launches when I was in high school, things like that. So maybe that had a little bit to do with it. It's always just been a dream of mine, and it's great to be able to be a physics professor. Tell us what's next for your research. So I'm gearing up to do to this recording we're doing in May, and so I'm gearing up to train more teachers on how to do coding in their classrooms. So we do online professional development. Space is still available if you're listening out there. And so we do regular video chats with those teachers to get them up to speed on, on how to do this, because a lot of teachers were never, you know, were never taught how to code as part of their education. And so we try to correct for that, and you know, hopefully we'll be able to do uh, some detailed studies in the fall of how do students interact with these coding activities, what do they gain, does it change their STEM identity. We published a study on this last year with just some preliminary results from OSU Merriam, but we want to do an even larger study and try to see like what really is the value of these activities, because you can't just put something in a classroom and just assume that it's doing better than what you did before because you feel good about it. You really have to get the hard data on what works. And a colleague of mine that helps me with that is Rochelle Teeling-Smith from the University of Mount Union in Alliance, Ohio. She'll be working closely with me to train those teachers and to plan the studies and things like that. So I'm excited about that. I hope that the students like the activities and it has a high impact, but we'll have to see what the data shows. Chris Orben, thank you. Thanks. Voices from the Arts and Sciences is produced and recorded at The Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer. Produced by Doug Dangler. I'm Ava Dale.